0: Let's cast ourselves back to the 18th century, when the Old English translation of Horbury or Dirty Land, stemming from the soil around the Calder River, still heavily applied. Harbury was an up and coming textile based community with a rural stock holding firm the population. It does not take a genius to realise that education was hardly important to those living in the area. If children weren't working on farms or in the cloth industry, they were in other local towns in their pits, mining out a living to support their families with the only day of respite really being church on Sundays, if they were lucky. It may sound bleak, but this state of affairs was basically standard at the time in Yorkshire, with wool and cloth work often being seen as slightly more luxurious. Nevertheless, from this we can see that key factors that have forever played a role in Harboury's education are still there. Religion, industry and its geography. The first semblance of a school is debated but it was most likely the town school that is first noted in 1708 on Tybound Street. The land was purchased by a community trust for the cost of around £4 or £915 today. It acted more as a Sunday school than anything, with the dual purpose of school and Sunday school from 1786 onwards. This led to an extension to provide for this in 1789. It even surprisingly had a sub-purpose built side building, what was called the Kidcote, that acted as a one-room, comfortless local prison for the town that's still there today. By 1827, a report mentioned that there were 10 poor children attending, but this inflated to 54 boys and 59 girls between the ages of 4 and 11 by 1870. A week's education there cost between three pence and six pence, or around £1.57 per week today, and it was noted as a strict place that instilled heavy Christian values like everywhere in England at the time, yet the original schoolmaster is still unknown. However, it is known that it did provide 40 local jobs for the people of Harbury as well. Scholars, as they were called, were expected to be there from 7.45am to 7pm, or in winter until dark, and studied on three founding rules of education set by the church. Scholars shall have their hands and faces clean, washed, and hair combed. They shall diligently attend to reading, writing, or spelling, as their masters shall think most useful of their learning or employment. No scholar on any pretense whatsoever shall despise another on account of dress or infirmities, or refuse to walk with the partner of his or her lot by size, but shall behave in respective and loving manners. Rather progressive for such a middle-of-nowhere township, but these rules were instilled by the church. Such progressive study for an industry town, however, ruffled many feathers. It was condemned by the education department in 1886, being finally closed on the 6th of June 1891. The need for such an institution just wasn't necessary anymore. The nature of education had changed by then and religious teaching was being done by churches or chapels, and the three hours were being taught by newly established day schools set out in Lord Sandon's Education Act of 1876, that made schooling mandatory for the first time. Yet prior to this, the school did struggle with consistent attendance anyway, and some children opted to mostly work instead, showing how strongly the industrial basis of Yorkshire affected these local towns and education. Tyburn School was a product of its time, a repeated struggle against child labour, religion and providing for low-income households of the area. However, this wasn't the only school in the Harby region during the 19th century. Gaskell School was founded in 1843 by Daniel Gaskell, the first MP of Wakefield. It had a bit more of a budget than Tyburn School had, with it being built on the corner of Wakefield Road and New Street at a cost of three grand then, or around £390,000 today. Its first headmaster was William Mortimer, a man mentioned as being strict, firm, yet charitable. It ran mostly in the same way as Tyburn, but became more of a day school with the attendance being generally more consistent, and notably getting some of Harbury's poorer children into better education after they left, something unheard of for the town at the time. It was substantially larger than the Barn School, and so could accommodate more of the children of Harbury. This was drastically affected as well by the Education Act of 1876, as Tyburn physically didn't have the capacity to match these new educational standards that were being forced. So it reflected well on Gasco as a politician that he supported such a school in a seemingly forgotten little village. The problem that befell Gasco school, however, was not the changing of morals and religious purpose like the farmer school, but instead its financial viability in politics. Having been opened under Wakefield's first MP and supported by his staff, it eventually began to struggle with funding. It fell under the jurisdiction of the county in 1893 before falling into disrepair as time went on. However, Gaskell's legacy lived on until 1972 under a foundation of his name that helped provide scholarships to underprivileged kids to get into local grammar schools. The mid-19th century was a turning point for Hobbes' education. Not only was Tyban hitting its stride, but the early days of the Gaskell School were beginning to thrive. It was under this precedent that in 1849, the National Society built St. Peter's National School at a cost of £160, or around £20,800 today. For such an obscure thing, the construction of schools in the area have a weird amount of surviving documentation, I found. Anyway, St. Peter's was explicit in its goal the education of children and adults of the labouring, manufacturing and other poorer classes in the township or chapelry of Harbury. Not only was this endeavour for the betterment of the youth, but also in advancing the education of adults in the area, previously unseen. Perhaps this was due to an educational lull in West Yorkshire at the time, or perhaps this was entirely for philanthropic reasons, we are not quite sure. But either way, this was incredibly progressive for the area and the time. St. Peter's hence grew rapidly compared to the others. By 1869, it required large extensions that even added a dedicated infant school in 1898. Upon the 1902 Education Act, the school was transferred to the West Riding County Council, although the church remained responsible for half an hour religious instruction five mornings a week. In 1893, all school fees were abolished, but the parents were asked to pay a penny a week or around three sixpence a year as a voluntary subscription. Unlike both Gaskell and Ty School, there were no crumble of the school due to politics or financial instability. St Peter's School only grew and developed a modest reputation throughout Wakefield as a commendable school for the less wealthy families of the area. On the 27th of August 1951, St. Peter's School ceased to be organised as an all-age school and became a primary and infant school. The boys' and girls' departments were combined under the headship of Mr. J.C. Douglas when the morality of keeping girls and boys separate had begun to shift in the modern era and it was deemed financially smarter to keep them together. On the 26th of March 1955, the infant school moved up to a new purpose-built Clifton Infant School grounds. In 1980, St. Peter's moved to Shepstie Road, joined by Clifton, in 2010, where it has been ever since as a jointly associated school sharing the same grounds. If there was one thing to note about the education of Horbury, it's that a charitable nature of the community fueled it for the most part, with less government backing until the late 20th century. Gaskell, the founding church members of the Thai barn, and communal funds that helped fund children to learning St. Peter's, all had great impacts. A name, however, that can also be associated with this is George Green of Highfields Road, who was a major player in hobby in the late 1800s. In 1876, his estate was partially opened for use as an independent school known as Wakefield Academy, which stood until 1956 when it changed to Highfields Grammar School. The school, however, was, well, let's say controversial. It was basically the David Bowie of schools for the area. It annoyed a lot of people with some of the stuff it tried to get away with, especially due to it even being run by a reverend, Reverend Smithies. Smithies was a wild card. He experimented with allowing students to have smoke breaks before, after, or even during the middle of lessons, as well as entirely contradicting the church value of schooling originally set by the old school. His thinking was, quote, It's like a forbidden fruit. As soon as pupils know that they can smoke, they aren't so anxious to do so. Not quite sure he'd get away with that nowadays. Not only this, but he didn't exactly care for procedure. It was reported that he had less than 4% of the proper paperwork in 1962. A mix of this and its obsolescence with the new schools growing meant that it closed its doors in 1968. There are many of the main players in the early days of schooling in Harbury. however there were some minor schools in this time, such as the Dame Schools, notably Miss Turton's on Hawcliffe, but most of these were closed when more local schools were opened such as Tyburn or Gaskell's. There were vague records of schoolings even before this that I could find, but it was hard to pin down any facts to do with them due to the lack of cohesive records, unfortunately. But anyway, I suppose most of you have been waiting to hear about the modern day primary and secondary academies, which is the main piece of our educational puzzle. In 1913, several small, unnotable Wesleyan day schools emerged from School Lane, Harbury Junction, and Forge Lane to fly under a single banner of Harbury Council School, officially opened on the 11th of June 1913 under Headmaster Halliday. This school quickly became the quickest educator for young students in Harbury, but it was plagued with problems from the start. Remember me mentioning the geography played a strong part in Harbury's education? Well, it caused major issues here. As I mentioned, Harbury is named after its dirty land, and it is under this idea that meant that the specific ground the school was built on was prone to flooding, disease and general issues. After only four months of opening... The school was closed for 10 days due to a diphtheria outbreak among students. This put a strain on directors as it became the landowner that took the blame, causing minor political issues for the school. This wasn't helped by the fact that another eight instances of outbreaks caused closures in just the first five years of opening. This awful stigma surrounding the school unfortunately it lasted all the way up until 1932 when vaccinations had become more commonplace and people were less nervous. It wasn't all bad. It was a beneficiary of many of the liberal reforms of the Depression era, with milk being freely available to students from 1929 and school meals being served from 1942. There was a strange experiment where they tried closing at 11.45 for lunch in 1939 to help reduce traffic at midday as growing car usage in Harbury became an issue. It became a senior school in 1951, servicing upwards of 424 students. It only grew even more rapidly since then, moving to a bigger location on Berry Lane in 1962. It even burnt down in the year 2000, causing over £1 million in damages. It eventually was reorganised and renovated into Harbury Primary School before later being renamed to Harbury Primary Academy in 2016, where it still stands today. It is at this point that I feel it is apt to call attention to the elephant in the room. Yes, Harbury's educational sector was unfortunately affected by the two world wars. I don't have time to go through them all, so here's just a few parts you may never have heard or seen before. Such as Percy Bates, 18-year-old when he died, finishing grammar school education just a few days before he enlisted. Eric Baines, died aged 19, two months before war's end. He joined up underage while attending several of the schools in Harbury, leaving his education early to follow his brother Lindsay to war both him and his brother deceased in 1915. It is stories like this that make it all seem real. Students, teachers, ground workers and all the support staff went to war, leaving it on the soldiers and many of the women of Harbury to support education at the time. While often overlooked, those lost during the conflict are still celebrated every year in all of Harbury's schools. The final school I want to mention is, of course, Harbury Academy. Opened March 1963 by Educational Secretary PM Christopher Chatterway. Their first headmaster was inherited from Horbury Council School, Headmaster R.L. Arundel. Until 2009 it was known as Horbury Comprehensive and since 2016 it has become a part of the Accord Multi-Academy Trust. Made up of Harbury Academy, Horbury Primary Academy, Middlestown Academy and Osset Academy and Sixth Form College. There are some notable figures coming from the Harbury school system out there, notably certain bands or local politicians, but the general consensus is that Harbury's education has been dragged from little more than a basic education for the poor to a fully-fledged functioning system that gives Harbury's youth the best chance possible.
1: Amy Winder and I'm the producer of Who Came Before. I'm here with Ben Walton to talk a bit more about his episode and the process of writing it. So, hi Ben, would you like to introduce yourself a bit?
0: Uh, Hello, I'm Ben Walton, a complete history nerd. Uh, I love (laughs) researching all types of history and so have been excited to join this podcast journey.
1: So, in the rest of your life, um, what do you do at the moment? Are you a student or something else?
0: I've just finished my uh, A-level studying modern history, uh, law and mathematics. And then I'm hopefully, depending on results, going on to study law at Durham University.
1: Oh, that's exciting. Um, So have you done any podcasting before? Why was it that you decided to get involved in this particular project?
0: I've I've always listened to podcasts, loved podcasts, enjoyed listening to them all the time. It's most of what I listen to nowadays. Um, whenever I'm bored I just stick them on and my favourite type is obviously history being a big history nerd so when I heard about this project coming up I, I wanted to be a part of it something to do and I, I've thought for a while of getting involved in doing some podcasting sort of stuff and I I felt like this would be a great way to jump in and get involved in doing doing some stuff like that.
1: Amazing so in terms of actually writing your episode what were some of the challenges involved in researching figures and deciding what to actually write about?
0: Well, I knew immediately that I was going into writing about um, the education in Harbury and uh, things like that, and being educated in just one town over, Osset, I already know a fair bit of background for um, Harbury itself anyway. But the, the main issues I came across when researching for this episode was not many people know that Harbury is a thing, so to find to find a lot of records and things like that, I was traipsing through different scholar sites and just trying to find some semblance of figures or facts that I can use. And there were there were some very helpful sites. Uh, don't get me wrong, on things like Facebook and communities that trying to keep the history of Harbury alive, which were incredible to find. Once I found them, the issue was it was it was very difficult finding many of these certain facts or issues um, purely because very little record of many of the things were kept and most most of the a lot of the facts I mentioned such as the 54 girls boys and 55 girls is an oral record that was written down as a quote so we're not still entirely sure if many of the facts are 100% correct on a lot of the things I've written about but it's the best that I could physically find. And being a tight-knit community, I feel like it's still very valuable and very um, correct for the most
1: part. I think that's one of the really interesting things about doing research about um, working people and education and the history of women is that there's a lot less record available than, say, the history of kings and queens. Um, Oh, yeah.
0: Oh yeah, especially little middle-of-nowhere harbour. people don't know where it is, don't know really what it is, so to find specific things on it is very difficult.
1: Yeah, definitely. Though one of the things that I found really interesting when listening to your episode is the mention of the name Gaskell, which I've heard before in the context of, in the first season of Who Came Before, um, we had an episode about Lady Catherine Milne's Gaskell um Who was obviously from the same family, so it's really interesting to hear that um this family has had such a big influence and impact on um the history of the area and education um and phil- and charity work. I cannot <laughs> say that word <laughs> philanthropic work
0: <There> we go. <laughs> um, well yeah they they're very they're in a very influential family, especially during the eighteen hundreds with Gaskell being. Um, Wakefield's first ever MP, so he he and his entire family had a lot of weight when family inheritance, things like that, were so important, so it wouldn't surprise me if they were two people linked via family or via marriage down the line.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, in terms of the figures that you talked about in your episode, if you could choose one of them to meet and have a conversation with, who do you think you'd pick?
0: Um, I'd either want to speak to um, Gaskell or Reverend Smithies, just to see what was <laughs> going through his head, um, because he just had an to say he was a reverend. He just had an entirely different approach to um, education that was vastly into what we know. Especially, it might be more reasonable. It might have been more reasonable at the time, but when even they at the time thought he was a bit wacko for some of the things he was suggesting to do in schools. Um it kinda of says something, you know, with how he wanted to encourage smoking and he he didn't keep any records he just all winged it as he went. I gotta rate it, but <laughs>
1: <laughs> Yeah, it sounds really interesting, um, to be able to have a conversation with the man. Um anyway i think we'll leave this conversation there thank you so much for talking to me about this then it's been really nice to hear some of the questions which i guess i could have emailed you but thought it would nice, be better bro. to record
0: well thank you, thank you for having me on the podcast anyway
1: <laughs> if there's anywhere that people want to find more of your work more of the stuff you do is there somewhere that they can find you
0: Uh, Well, yeah, in the coming weeks, I'm hopefully setting up a podcast of my own. that's going to be called Through the Eras. It's hopefully going to be available everywhere that this podcast will be available. And just trying to get that out there, it's just going to be a casual talk about various areas of history. Um, I believe we're starting with the Trojan Wars, if that interests anyone. But yeah, that's Through the Eras. If you ever see it coming up, give it a listen. That sounds
1: amazing. I'm absolutely going to listen to that. Okay, so that's us. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day. Bye! Today's episode of Who Came Before was written and performed by Ben Walton with theme music by Branwyn Munn. It was produced and edited by Amy Window for Wakefield Litfest and funded by the Common Commonlands Trust. To find out more about Wakefield Litfest, Find us on Twitter, at WakeyLiftFest, or on Instagram, at Litfest or search for us on Facebook. Thank you again for listening.